This episode of Hitch to Homicide deals with the subject matter of mental illness. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Mental Health Hotline at 866-903-3787. Again, 866-903-3787. You can also dial 988 or text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. September 26, 2012, Los Feliz, California. Film and TV actor Johnny Lewis has moved back into a home at 3605 Lowry Lane. It's a place affectionately known by writers, directors, and actors as the Writer's Villa. It's a place Johnny has lived once before. But after only two days back in the home, Johnny will murder the owner of the house, Catherine Davis a woman who acted as an emotional surrogate parent to so many during their fledgling years in Hollywood. This is the tragic story of actor Johnny Lewis and the legendary arts patron, Katherine Davis, murder and the mom of Hollywood. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody yes welcome 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 and this one here we go this is for our <laughs> friends in new orleans oh i like how you're sticking in the states these yeah. days yeah you ready uh-huh <laughs> wish me luck okay laissez le bon temps au lait laissez le bon temps au lait laissez le bon temps au lait somebody's gonna email you of course it's terrible but what it means <laughs> is and this is what they say in new orleans let the good times roll yeah <laughs> that's right laissez le bon temps au lait how did you say that? I believe I listened to the, some Frenchman say it for me. <laughs> Laissez le bon temps au lait. There we go. Some Frenchman or some Creole Frenchman? Well, he was a Frenchman on YouTube. That's oh, how okay. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Well, wherever you are listening, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Please like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. Yes, it does. Also, if you want more Hitch to Homicide on the daily, Go join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Mm -hmm. Just type H2H In-Laws and Outlaws and answer a couple of questions and you're in. It's a good group of wacky people. It is. (laughs) You can always follow us on social media at Hitch to Homicide on Instagram and at H2H underscore podcast on X. Excellent. (laughs) Now that we've got all of that out of the way, (laughs) I want to tell you... We asked for listener brushes with true crime, and we are getting them. Nice. And I will highlight one at the end of the podcast. Okay. But if you've had your own brush with true crime, let us know, and we just might cover it. True crime greatness. (laughs) Your brush with true crime. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, we're heading to Hollywood, honey. Okay. It's a sad and tragic story. Okay. But I wanted to do it to honor a woman who was a huge patron of the arts. Rob and I are both huge patrons of the arts. Yes, we are. I thought it was really important to tell her story because his story gets told a lot. Okay. Before we get started, I'm going to thank the folks who did all the heavy lifting, our sources, CBS News, LA Magazine, Sports Kita, The New York Post, The LA Times, The Daily Mail, Find a Grave, The Hollywood Reporter, IMDB and Investigation Discoveries, Death by Fame. Nice. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. Catherine Elvira, she goes by Kathy Shabbat, was born on November 30th, 1930 in Dallas, Texas. Okay. Her parents were George and Alma. And Kathy's grandmother, her name is also Catherine, her namesake, was born in Vienna, Austria. Oh, wow. Her mom's family immigrated to America, and in particular, Texas, in the late 1800s. 
Kathy has two siblings, Richard and Georgie. Okay. Kathy grew up in Texas, came to California when she's 20, because she's going to attend UCLA. Nice. She worked in lots of different publishing jobs before she married James H. Davis. And on February 19th, 1958, she gave birth to their daughter, Margaret Leslie Davis, hmm. who's gone on to be this incredible author. And I will have a link to her website in the show notes. She has absolutely nothing to do with this case other than, of course, her mother is a part of this case. But her books are pretty incredible, and I'm always down to connect readers to authors. Sure. After Margaret Leslie is born, her parents buy a home in Las Feliz at 3605 Lowry Road. Okay. By the way, there are several ways to pronounce Los Feliz. Los Feliz. I've heard it a bunch of different ways. I looked it up, and apparently it depends on what part of L.A. you live in. Los Feliz. Yeah. I'm doing my best. (laughs) But this house was built between 1927 and 1928. It was a Spanish home with exposed wooden beams and rustic antique furniture. Okay. The floors are tile, and there is a staircase with inlaid ceramic tiles leading to one of five guest rooms. Okay. The house had beautiful views of the San Gabriel Mountains. Hmm. But by the early 1980s, Kathy and James had divorced, and her daughter was out of college, and Kathy had started to work as a real estate agent in California. Okay. And what she would do is she would use her beautiful home as a temporary place for her clients to stay while they are house hunting. Wow. And being the creative woman that she was, Kathy's bed and breakfast for real estate clients morphed into an extended bed and breakfast for up-and-coming performers, directors, and writers. Oh, wow. And through word of mouth, more and more actors, writers, and directors showed up looking for a place to land. And when somebody would move out, they would let the others know that their room was available at what was now called the Writer's Villa. Oh, wow. And it wasn't cheap to live there. Tenants paid between $1,650 and $3,000 a month for one bedroom with a sitting area and a private bathroom. Wow. And what year was this? Uh, this is in the 80s. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a, quite a bit of cash. It is quite a bit of cash. They shared the common areas like a living room, the patio, and the kitchen. And the names of the folks who lived there, it's pretty incredible. Thomas Jane, he was great in in HBO's Hung. Mm -hmm. Parker Posey, we adore her in all the Christopher Guest movies. Comedian Paula Poundstone, Val Kilmer, Ted Negron, Chris Parnell. That's just a few. Wow. She was like a mom to these performers and writers and directors. Mm-hmm. And they've talked about how she would console them after they had like a bad audition or a bad meeting in Hollywood. And the whole place was just brimming with talent and creativity. And Kathy made it a safe haven for these creatives. Okay. In an L.A. Magazine article, Paula Poundstone tells a story about Kathy where she was waiting for a cab. Paula Poundstone's waiting for a cab to take her to the Burbank airport, and the cab never showed up. So Kathy calms her down, and she writes out the instructions for her to drive herself there. But she realized that Paula was so flustered that she wasn't going to be able to do this. So she just basically says... Do you want me to take you to the airport? Wow. <laughs> and Paula was like, yes, please. <laughs> but that's the kind of loving and supporting person she was. Sure. In 2009, an actor named Johnny Lewis moved into the red suite of the writer's villas. Okay. Jonathan Kendrick Lewis was born on October 29th, 1983 in Los Angeles to parents Michael and Devona Lewis. My, 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 Devona. That's my Sharona. And that's the 80s for sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's closest I could come to. He's a middle kid of his siblings and he grew up in North Hollywood and Sherman Oaks. His parents are practicing Scientologists who have attained... The level, it's the highest available level of Scientology. They're operating Thetans or OT8s. And an OT8, according to L. Ron Hubbard's writings, is someone in a spiritual state who offers, quote, knowing and willing case over life, thought, matter, energy, space, and time, end quote. Okay. 
By the time Johnny is six years old, his mom is taking him to auditions in L.A. And when he's seven, he's actually cast in his first role, which I thought this was funny. It was an escalator safety video with a rapping cartoon raccoon. (laughs) Everybody's got to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then he moved on to doing commercials, and he did a Pizza Hut ad, a national Pizza Hut ad. And this got him small parts on Seventh Heaven, Malcolm in the Middle, and Drake and Josh. So now he started to make some money. He's turned 18, and he leaves his parents' home in the Valley, and he moved to Hollywood, where he lived with other actors in what was known as the Wilton Hilton. (laughs) Okay, I'm afraid to ask what that was. Well, apparently it's a place where loads of young Hollywood people in the entertainment business lived, like a house on Wilton Avenue. Okay. It had rotating people in and out, and he lived there with Adam Brody, Brett Harrison, Ashley Simpson, all these people who were about the same age as he was. Gotcha. In 2005 and 2006, he lands a role on the show, The O.C., where he plays Dennis Chili Childress for nine episodes. It's also around this time that Johnny starts dating singer Katy Perry. Oh, She was super new to the pop scene, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but her parents are Pentecostal, which is a strict Protestant movement that emphasizes the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues and supernatural healing. Yeah, when she came out with the song, I Kissed a Girl and Liked It, Mm -hmm. I guess her parents sort of- Weren't all too happy about it. Yeah, they were freaked out just a little bit. But he grew up in the Church of Scientology, another strict religion- They aren't going to date for too long. Katie would say after the breakup that she needed to focus on her own career. Okay. There are two songs off her album, Teenage Dream, the one that got away and Circle the Drain. Those are both rumored to be at least in part about her relationship with Johnny. Hmm. After he leaves the OC, the show, he does one-offs on Bones, Shark, Crime Scene Investigation. He also does some movies, Palo Alto, Aliens versus Predator Requiem, Eight Days a Week, One Missed Call. But then in 2008, he lands a role that would make him famous hmm. because he's kind of been under the radar at this point. He's had roles, but nothing that really defined him. Yeah, I had a friend of mine. She had uh, some roles on um, like the crime shows. Yeah. Not, not the fictional, but the ones where they recap. And she was always the dead person that was buried <laughs> in the dirt. see like half of her face it was all messed up (laughs) well it's kind of a little joke we have a daughter who lives in new york works on broadway she's on tour right now but everybody on broadway has been in or been a body on um law and order yeah (laughs) yeah that's how you break into the biz exactly you just play a dead body Yeah, yeah yeah but his new role is on the FX show Sons of Anarchy, playing a guy named Halfsack. Okay. His name was Kip Halfsack Epps. You want to know why his name is, his nickname is Halfsack? I'm afraid to ask. I was thinking (laughs) why, what possibly could- Just take a wild guess. uh, Partial castration? You're close. Okay. He lost a testicle in the Iraq War. That's his backstory. Halfsack. Half sack. Oh, man. That's brutal. Yes. <laughs> but while he's working on the show, everybody loves him. Everybody loves Johnny. Right. But he only did two seasons of Sons of Anarchy, and the show would air for six seasons. But after two, he wanted to be written off the show. He Why? wanted out of his contract. Really? Yeah. Why? And that's kind of rare. Who wants to leave a show? Yeah, a hit show. At a that. hit show in the middle of it. But according to his dad, Michael Lewis, quote, he told us he left because the show was getting into gratuitous violence, end quote. Hmm. Well, it's a show based on Hell's Angels. It's called Sons of Anarchy. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he's actually written out on the last episode of season two where he's stabbed while he's trying to save a baby. Hmm. I could say that's called foreshadowing. Maybe I'll just do it. That's called foreshadowing. Uh Oh, here we go. Yeah. 
After Johnny leaves Sons of Anarchy, he will never return to television. Hmm. He did a couple of low-budget feature films and some short films, but mostly while he's living off his Sons of Anarchy bunny, Mm -hmm. he's writing and trying to finish his first novel about a young musician in San Francisco. He also takes a couple of really dark roles where he plays like a serial killer, and he was really good at taking on the qualities of these characters. Which I get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he was a method actor, but I think he sat in those roles he had in order to give his best performance. And there are a lot of actors who will say after they finished filming a role that it took them a while to recover. Sure. Johnny Depp actually moved into Hunter S. Thompson's basement to get down his mannerisms. And he was so into it that the cast and the crew was actually worried about him. Really? Yeah, and even after the movie wrapped, he was kind of still acting like Hunter S. Thompson. Wow. And I think everybody knows the story about the Joker with Heath Ledger. Yeah. And he had a really hard time coming out of the dark place he went to to play that character. Yeah. And I've even read an interview with Bill Skarsgård, the guy who played Pennywise, the clown, Mm -hmm. in the movie It. Yeah, yeah. He had a really hard time going in and out of character, and he said he had nightmares for months After they wrapped the movie. Wow. I just have nightmares when I write a bad score. (laughs) That's all. It's my biggest thing. But while he's finishing his book and doing these dark roles, he's also dating actress Diane Marshall Green. And not long after these two start dating, she discovers she's pregnant. Hmm. Johnny was really happy about this. And on April 6, 2010, he and Diane have a baby girl and name her Kala May. Hmm. But by the time the baby is born, Diane and Johnny are no longer together. But they did move into an apartment together because they want to raise their daughter together, which sounds like a perfectly horrible idea to me. (laughs) And it was. What possibly could go wrong? (laughs) He moved out. And then he and Diane were in a custody battle, and he eventually loses this custody battle. Hmm. And it's really going to take a toll on him. Then on October 30th, 2011, after doing all these roles and losing his custody battle and not really working on anything big, he decides he's going to clear his head and go for a motorcycle ride on his Triumph. Nice bike. He rides about two hours away from L.A. He's not wearing a helmet. Hmm. And I've seen interviews with the Sons of Anarchy crew where they talk about the fact that they all had to take motorcycle safety training on set. Yeah. And it's against the law to ride a motorcycle in California without a helmet. Right. Yeah. Do you know what neurosurgeons call people who ride a motorcycle without a helmet? What? An organ donor. There you go. That's yeah. pretty much it. Closed head injuries. Yeah. I never, yeah. never rode mine without one. Thank goodness. But he's out riding his bike. Johnny loses control of this motorcycle near 29 Palms, and he crashes. And when he goes to the hospital, the staff checks him for signs of a concussion, but they let him leave after all his tests came back negative. Okay. So he couldn't have been hurt that bad if he's walking out of the hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we've had kids who've had concussions. They keep them overnight if they're even the least bit worried. Sure. But it's at this point that Johnny's father says... Johnny was a different person. He was never the same. And I'll grant him that one because this is where it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Okay. Johnny's behavior, according to his father, became bizarre and erratic. His dad actually scheduled an MRI for him two different times, Hmm. but Johnny refused to go. Hmm. And in December of that year, while he's in an acting class, he was speaking in this weird British accent. And when his fellow acting students asked him about it, he just kind of shrugged it all off. Like his friends think he's acting a little weird. Mm -hmm. But when 2012 rolled around, he was doing more than speaking in a British accent. On the morning of January 3rd, 2012, he's at his parents' condo. I actually read that he bought this place for his parents. But he's in his pajamas and a t-shirt and he's watching his mom make breakfast. She's making omelets. He says, I'm going for a stroll, and he goes for a walk. And when he walks past his parents' neighbor's condo, he thought he heard a baby crying. Okay. 
So he broke into the condo because he thinks nobody's there and there's this baby crying all alone. This is what he's going to say later. Once he's inside, there's no one there. And not long after he's inside this house, after he breaks in, the owners of the condo show up. It's two men who promptly asked him to leave. And instead of leaving, Johnny picks up an empty Perrier bottle and he hits them both in the head with it. Good Lord. Then these three get into a huge fight, and it goes from the condo to the patio. These two men will say they were fighting with him, but nothing they did seemed to affect him. He was superhuman or something. Hmm. But it is two against one, and they did get a hold of him. They beat him in the head, I think, 17 or 18 times. But he bit one of the guys in the arm when he tried to get away. But they're holding him down. The police show up and these two men have him pinned to the ground. And Johnny says it was all in (laughs) self-defense. I broke into their place and it was in self-defense. Yeah, but the police charge him with trespassing, burglary and assault with a deadly weapon. Sure. And they took him to the Twin Towers jail in L.A. And while he's there, he starts banging his head on the cement walls in his cell. Wow. And after three days of this... They take him to the psych ward as a 5150, which is involuntary confinement. And I just want to know why they waited three days for him yeah. to beat his head. Yeah. Hey, it's uh, he's been uh, beating his head for three days now. Do you think we should take him We somewhere? should probably take him in. Wow. Although I have heard that the Twin Towers is incredibly overcrowded. So maybe it was just, you know. Yeah. Waiting for an opening. Yeah. Yeah. He stays there for 72 hours in the psych ward, and then his father, Michael, bails him out. His discharge paper said that his chief complaint was blunt head trauma and suicidal ideations. So he's in custody eight days between jail and the psych ward before his dad comes and picks him up. Okay. And he goes back to live with his parents. He's black and blue from the fighting and from beating his face and his head against the concrete blocks. He wouldn't allow anybody to touch him, and he was really sensitive to light, and he started turning off all the lights in the house, and he even went to the fuse box and just turned the power off to the house. Yeah, there's there's definitely something neurologically wrong going on there. Uh, For sure. Yeah. For sure. And I could say that turning off the fuse box at his parents' house is foreshadowing, but I'll let you decide that for yourself, so I won't do it again. All right, because I don't have my piano on right now. (laughs) In the days that followed him coming home in January, he tried to slit his wrists. Wow. So his family keeps a close eye on him. Why he didn't go into an inpatient psych facility at this point is beyond me. But some have said that because Scientologists don't believe in psychiatry, Uh, maybe that's the reason his family didn't, like, whisk him off. Yeah. But his parents said that by the end of January, they thought he was stable enough to live on his own. Big mistake. Big. Big. Big mistake. (laughs) Johnny moves to Santa Monica, and immediately it starts to get weird again. On February 10th, 2012, Lewis is at a yogurt shop, and he starts talking to this family. He's just like making small talk with the whole family. But as soon as this family is leaving, they're walking away from the shop, Johnny suddenly jumps the dad. He runs and jumps on top of the dad, punching him in the head. And the guy just happened to be an off-duty Santa Monica police officer. Oops. So he goes back to jail. His father bails him out when he's released on a $20,000 bond. Man. Days later, he walked with all his clothes into the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica. He has to be rescued and hospitalized for hypothermia. I mean, come on. Somebody's got to be able to put the hammer down and say, dude, you got to go to a psych ward and stay there. Yeah. I mean, suicide attempts. Yeah. He has these, you know, these outbursts. Then he's tried to just walk into the Pacific Ocean, has to be hospitalized. Yeah. Okay. It's odd to me that he had a suicide attempt at the beginning of January, and by the end of January, his dad's like, yep, he's good to go. <laughs> Let him go. Yeah. Let's cut him loose. And all this stuff is happening in a short period of time, too. Everything's happening in a very short period of time. Huh. Because on February 18th, 2012, 
At 9.23, police respond to a call by a woman. Her last name is Merkel. She calls to say that she looks out her window and a man is just standing there. This is also in Santa Monica, by the way. He's staring through her window and then he tries to raise the window. And she says something to the effect of, what are you doing? Yeah. And he says, I'm looking for my friend, Bob. And she said, no, you aren't. You were trying to break into my house. (laughs) So when police arrive, he tells them, she's my friend and I have every right to be here. Wow. And this woman, this Miss Merkel is, is like, I've never seen this dude in my life. But when I read that, I thought, I can't imagine like whipping open the curtains and there's a person standing there. It's happened to me once in New York City and yeah. it's not it's not fun. It scares you to death. Yep. That's uh that's a depends moment. <laughs> oh gosh, I swear. What am I going to do with you? <laughs> I don't know. You're stuck with me, sorry. <laughs> Too late now. Yep. Yep. So here's what he's got going on. He's got the incident with the two men. He's got to go to court for that. He's got the episode with the off-duty cop in Santa Monica. He's going to have to go to court for that. And he'll have to go to court for trying to break into this apartment. (laughs) He's got an attorney. His name is Jonathan Mandel. And he's got a bunch of court appearances with this guy that he needs to to do. Wow. I wonder if he was court-appointed attorney? No. Really? No. So they're paying him outright. They are paying him outright. Well, the attorney's going, let's see, got one count, two count. (laughs) Cha-ching. <laughs> well, hang on. All right. He has seen doctors. They've made him see doctors in prison, mm-hmm. and they have prescribed Lewis both Zyprexa and Abilify, which are used to treat the conditions of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Okay. But he didn't want to take his medicine, mm. and he didn't really take his meds. And I even read where when he was in the psych ward or under supervision – that they thought he would like cheek his medicine yeah, and then take it out and throw it away. Wow. But Johnny's dad seems to think that Johnny doesn't have a clear diagnosis and that he's suffering from some sort of traumatic brain injury from the motorcycle crash. Right. Plus, he's been beaten pretty badly when he breaks into these two guys home and they hit him. He hits him with the Perrier bottle. It's a 32 caliber Perrier bottle. And not to mention, he's been whacking his head against the cinder block walls of the jail cell. Yeah. But remember, Johnny isn't treated for a brain injury when he crashes his bike. They send him home that day. Yeah. So his injuries couldn't have been that severe. And according to Dr. Christopher Giza, a neurologist at the UCLA Brain Injury Research Center, the headaches and the sensitivity to light that he was having, mm-hmm. those are indicative of a concussion, yeah. but not a traumatic brain injury. Yeah, but if you think about it, I mean, you look at some of the NFL players and a few of them that have committed suicide. Yes. Uh, from, you know, constant uh, concussions that they've, they've sustained, ha- sustained year during, after year after yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. But that's really over a long span of time. That's it, not one concussion. Yeah. That's several concussions. And playing ball for years and years. But if he smacked his head when he had the motor motorcycle crash. Yes. I mean, who knows? But they did tests on him yeah. at the hospital. I'm sure they looked at his head to see if he had a head bleed or anything like that. Inside a brain bleed. Yeah. I mean, we've been to the ER for concussions before. That's what they do. Yeah. But he did not get the MRI that his yeah. dad wanted him to. Right. But his attorney, Jonathan Mandel... He tries to get the court to let Johnny swap jail time for a treatment center. But Johnny doesn't do drugs. Mm. He doesn't drink. All this is according to the people he worked with on Sons of Anarchy and his friends. And there's even an interview with, I think, this hair and makeup girl from the FX show. And she says that, yeah, there were substances on set. But Johnny didn't partake. He Mm. didn't do drugs. Okay. And another inmate in the Twin Towers in the jail in L.A. who became friends with Johnny, yeah. he said there were all kinds of opportunities in jail to do drugs, and he turned it down multiple times. Hmm. Johnny's attorney gets him transferred out of jail, and on May 23, 2012, he's been in the Twin Towers for two months, 
and he's taken to Ridgeview Ranch in Altadena. Okay. It's a place with equine therapy, yoga, hmm. meditation, art therapy. Like, dude, can I check in for a couple of days? The only thing missing is free ice cream. I mean, throw a spa. Give me a <laughs> massage in there and I'll go check in. <laughs> I'll just act nuts for a little bit. Maybe yeah. I can get <laughs> Well, I am halfway there already, <laughs> as we all know. Anyway. Ridgeview Ranch treats not only substance abuse, but psychosis. But he tells his friends that I was in this fight, it was self-defense, hitting these two other guys with this bottle, and that the case is ongoing, but he thinks he might get it dropped with time served, and that he went to rehab to avoid a trial, and that it was such a joke because he had to pretend to be addicted to weed, to marijuana. Hmm. And as you might imagine... The professional staff at this center didn't think that Johnny had a drug problem. Right. So he switched to saying he was an alcoholic. Okay. And instead, the staff, they just started to believe him. Yeah, well, he's an actor. He is an actor. Yeah. But even though he's lying about why he's there, I mean, these folks had to see that he was in a mental crisis. Right. He starts to feel better, to which I say, well, lo and behold... You get some help for your mental health and you start to feel better. Sure. I can't stress it enough. If you don't feel well, if you do, if you think your mental health is suffering, go see somebody. Yeah. Talk to your doctor about it. Yeah, I mean, we take care of ourselves physically, but we sort of ignore the mental part yes. of, of our body. And it's just the wrong thing to do. That Absolutely. Can... And there's such a stigma attached yeah. to it. I'm just here to tell you. Go find yourself somebody to talk. Talk to a counselor. Talk yep. to somebody. Yep. But he's still facing jail time for the bottle assault. Okay. So again, his attorney goes to bat for him. And in court, he says, let's put him at Ridgeview for an entire year and he won't have to go to jail. Okay. And they agree. And Johnny said, no. <laughs> he's still crying self-defense. Wow. And his attorney is like, dude. Take the deal. Yeah, this wasn't self-defense. So Johnny fires his attorney and decides... He's going to represent himself. going to represent himself there in court. Go. Way yeah. to go there, Johnny. Been on law and order. <laughs> I think I can do it. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> but I played one on TV. <laughs> yeah, literally. Jeez. And the judge allowed it. And Johnny is thinking, sure, I'll spend a couple days in jail. But when I'm free, I won't have to go to Ridgeview. Because there he had curfews and mandatory group sessions. Sure. And he'll also be out of jail. I'm free as a bird. <laughs> Not so fast, yeah. Johnny. The judge sentenced him to one year in jail. Wow. And they took him back to the Twin Towers. But the jails were so overcrowded, he only spends six weeks in jail. Mm. And he's released on September 21st. 2012. Wow. Now, when he's out, he stays in a hotel before his dad helps him to get what's left of his life back on track. Sure. He buys new clothes. He gets his motorcycle back. And he asked his dad if he would call Kathy Davis to see if he could have a room at the writer's villa. Hmm. And according to his father, he believed that because Johnny wouldn't go back to Ridgeview, that the writer's villa would be a peaceful place for him to land because he had been there before. He lived there before he was cast on... Um, Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. And Kathy Davis, who's there, who runs the place, mm -hmm. she's working on a book at that time. She was writing a biography of Phoebe Apperson Hurst, mother of William Randolph Hearst. Oh, I visited the castle out there. It's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. But Kathy says yes. When Johnny's dad calls, she says, absolutely. And he, I'll have his old room, the red room, ready for him. It'll be ready to go. Right. Now, you would think that Johnny's father, who made these arrangements, might say, look at Kathy. Johnny's had a rough go of it. He's been in jail. He's been to a mental health facility. He's got issues that you need to be aware of. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't do any of those. He did not. Yeah. Wow. Quote, 
It didn't occur to me to say, oh, by the way, he was having problems. I thought this is a place he is familiar with and they will give him a lot of love, end quote. Jeez. So Johnny moves into his old room on the second floor of the writer's villa at 3605 Lowry Lane. He moves in on Monday, September 24th, 2012. On Tuesday, September 25th, Johnny's dad calls to see how he's feeling. Have you settled in? And Johnny answers his phone very agitated and says, quote, I'm busy. What do you want? End quote. Wow. And his dad said he eventually calmed him down and he told his dad he'd chat with him later. And I realize that hindsight is twenty twenty, but isn't that a red flag? He's got this volatile personality thing. He doesn't take his medicine. He's out on his own without a support system like he had at Ridgeview, right? Mm-hmm. Listen, the amount of red flags that this guy has had up to this point, they could probably cover their house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Geez. Tons of red flags. Holy cow. Wednesday, September 26th, 2012. This is five days after Johnny is released from jail and two days since he's moved back into Kathy Davis's home. It's around 10 a.m., and Johnny is pacing up and down the sidewalk in front of the writer's villa in the neighborhood. He's wearing nothing but jeans and red shoes. Okay. He's sweating. He looks very disheveled. He's thin and his hair is kind of wild. But that was kind of his, you know, his unkept, you know, tortured artist look anyway. I sure. mean, even when he was feeling like himself. Right. That was kind of his style. That was his look. It was. Yeah. Kathy Davis's neighbor, Dan Blackburn, is watching him pace up and down the sidewalk. And Dan happens to have a painter working on the first floor of a back deck at his house that morning. Okay. A deck that overlooks this 1928 Spanish-style house that was the writer's villa. Right. So Johnny, he's sweaty without a shirt. He walks over to Dan's house, who comes out onto his front doorstep, and he introduces himself to Dan, saying, quote, Hi, I'm John, your new neighbor, end quote. Okay. And Dan Blackburn says, quote, Nice to meet you, John, end quote. And Johnny then just turns around and walks away. That's weird. And neighbor Dan is thinking exactly the same thing you're yeah. thinking. Yeah. That's really odd. Yeah. And Dan goes back to his morning routine. You know, he's kind of overseeing the painting on the back deck of his house, as you do when you have home improvements. You know, you go out and check on stuff. Sure. What happens next is up for debate, although most believe that this is the chain of events that day. All right. Johnny abruptly turns around, walks away. He goes back to the writer's villa, Kathy Davis's home. He goes into the home, goes upstairs to Kathy's master bedroom. That's across the hall from the red room and begins to beat and strangle 81-year-old Kathy Davis. Wow. Now, this next part is very graphic. I just want to warn you now, okay? okay? All right. He punches her in the face over and over. He strangles her and then fractured her entire skull. He destroyed the left side of her face, leaving her brain exposed. Mm. There's brain tissue on the floor around her. Her face is covered in blood and her nose is split down the middle Jeez. and her upper jaw is split open. Jeez. Brutal. Wow. Just brutal. Rage. She's 81 years old. Yeah. He leaves her dead in the floor beside her bed. The coroner will also find four puncture wounds to her left cheek, and they believe that those came from a mechanical pencil that is beside her body. Mm. Her head is so disfigured that the police think that Johnny stomped on her skull. Wow. Then Johnny picks up Kathy's beloved cat, no. Jesse, and he basically kills the cat with his bare hands. Mm. There are reports that he dismembered the cat, but its head was also bashed in. Jeez. Johnny leaves the dead cat, Jesse, in his bathroom off of his room in the red room in the shower. Now, after this, 
he goes back outside to Dan's house where he was just 30 minutes prior. Right. And without warning, he attacks the house painter, the guy who's painting the house on the back of the back of this wow. guy's house. He just attacks him. Wow. And Dan's wife, Gloria, she sees what's happening. She screams for her husband, who, by the way, is 71. Mm. Dan's 71. Dan gets outside, and Johnny's on top of the painter beating him with his fists. Jeez. And the guy's face is covered in blood, and blood was all over Johnny, too. Wow. So Dan tries to pull Johnny off the painter. He grabs him by the shoulder and yells at him to stop. And Johnny leaps to his feet and punches Dan in the eye, knocking him to the ground. Mm. According to Dan, his wife and the painter, Johnny's expression was like flat. He had like this distant gaze, that thousand yard gaze. And he seemed to have superhuman strength. Mm. Still, Dan gets back up on his feet, 71 years old, and he lands a punch to the side of Johnny's head, and then he picked up a chair and hit him with that, too. And this gave Dan, Gloria, and the painter just enough time to run into the house. Okay. But when they tried to shut the front door, Johnny sticks his arm through, and he is grabbing and pushing. I read in one source, it was like a horror movie. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like something out of a movie. It's a horror movie. Wow. It took all three of them to push on this door to get him to pull his arm out. Wow. And then they slam the door on his arm four times and he finally removes it. Then they barricade the door and Dan sees Johnny from his window leap over a waist high fence and around the deck and jump up the wooden fence surrounding Kathy's house. Jeez. He like scaled the fence and disappeared. Yeah, superhuman strength abilities. Yeah. And according to Dan, he was like, quote, a low-key Spider-Man, end quote. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. They call the police. That call comes in at 1040 a.m. and LAPD arrives within minutes. And when they do, they find Johnny Lewis in the middle of the driveway of the writer's villa, dead. Mm. What happened to him? He's lying face up. His left eye socket is caved in and his skull is cracked in half. He had either fallen or jumped from the second floor patio of the house or the roof. Falling 50 feet. He died instantly. That would do it. Now, when police go inside, they find that the first floor of the house is in perfect condition. Pristine was the word that I read. Okay. But when they went upstairs to the second floor, they are immediately stepping over glass. And I read in one source that not only was the second floor completely ransacked, furniture broken, every mirror was broken, and Kathy actually collected folk art. And that whole collection was broken into pieces as well. Mm. So it's almost like anything Kathy loved, her cat, her collection, he just tore it up. In the red room, they find a rusty hammer with blood on it. And in that connecting bathroom, they find Jesse the cat. And then across the hallway in the master bedroom, police see signs of a struggle. There's blood on Kathy's bed frame, the wall, a table, a chair. And on the bed were pages of a book that she'd been working on, the biography of Phoebe Hearst. Downstairs, where it was pristine, Her breakfast was sitting out. She hadn't even touched it. When they examine Johnny, he has scratch marks on his neck from Kathy trying to fend him off. Mm. So it's L.A. It's Los Angeles. He's an actor down on his luck, in and out of jail and or rehab or mental health facilities. And the news is that he had this superhuman strength. And immediately the Internet goes nuts with theories The biggest was that he was using bath salts. Mm. It's a designer drug containing an amphetamine-like chemical called, just wait for this, I think I'm saying it right, methylene dioxypyrovalerone. Wow. Or MDPV. Mm. And the use of bath salts had made headlines just that spring. It's snortable or it's injectable. It's a powder. 
and it accounted for a whole bunch of grisly attacks around the United States. Like one guy was caught eating the face of another person in the middle of a street. Or there was one guy, he was a half-naked man at a golf course in Georgia who threatened to eat the police. Wow. And this guy also had superhuman strength, and a number of officers had to hold him down while they tased him 14 times. Good Lord. And the whole time he was screaming about how he wanted to eat them. Jeez. So while all these Hollywood writers, actors, producers, directors come forward with their shocked condolences about how much they loved Kathy, how they never would have made it without her tender loving care, the toxicology reports are cooking. And eight weeks later, what do you think they find? They don't find anything. Nothing. No alcohol, no bath salts, no meth, no cocaine. And they didn't even find his prescribed antipsychotic medication. Mm. So what happened? Investigators think that he went over and introduced himself to Dan Blackburn and then went back to the writer's villa where he confronted Kathy in her room. Nobody knows why, but there have been people who have floated the idea that maybe Johnny turned off the electricity to the house the night before. Remember, he shut off the fuse box at yeah. his parents' house. Right. Maybe he did the same thing at her house, and maybe she confronted him about it. So did that fuel his rage in some way? Hmm. And did he kill the cat first, and she saw that and then confronted him? Right. And what about the superhuman strength? Right. There is something called hysterical strength which is a display of extreme physical strength by humans beyond what is believed to be normal. It usually occurs when people are in or perceive themselves to be in life or death situations. Mm. And the example that's always given is like a mom having superhuman strength to rescue her own child. Right. Did you know that comic book artist Jack Kirby was inspired to create the Hulk after he witnessed a woman lift a car to save her baby in 1962. Really? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So was that what was going on with Johnny? I mean, the thing is, when he wasn't mentally ill, he was this great guy, according to all his friends. Yeah. And there was all this outpouring of love for him after his death, and people were a little miffed that the life of Kathy Davis didn't get the same attention as Johnny. Right. There were also people who blamed the Church of Scientology because of the church's resistance to psychiatry. But Johnny's dad says he did pursue psychiatric treatment for Johnny, but Johnny wouldn't go. He wouldn't comply, which is true. Mm -hmm. He didn't take his medicine. In the middle of all of the I love you, Johnny tweets, all the outpouring for this actor, this young actor, the creator of Sons of Anarchy wrote, quote, I wish I could say I was shocked by the events last night, but I was not, end quote. Really? Yeah. What did he know? I I don't know. But maybe he saw something in Johnny when Johnny was like, I'm out of here. And the irony is he wanted off the series because he thought it was gratuitous violence. Yeah. I was actually, I was about ready to go there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad story all the way around. Yeah. As for the writer's villa, it is no longer. I actually read that Kathy was breaking laws by allowing tenants in her home in the first place. Really? But nobody seemed to mind. Yeah. The website for the writer's villa is now gone. I'm uncertain if her daughter still owns the house or not. I did try to sift through the real estate records, but even photos of the house are blurred online, kind of like the Amityville house in Long Island. Right. I believe he was, of course, mentally ill. Right. And at every turn... He refused to help himself out. One article said, and I believe this too, that Johnny was Johnny's worst enemy. But that is the story of Kathy Davis and the writer's villa and her killer, film and TV actor Johnny Lewis. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. 
With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. Anytime somebody has any kind of head injury or anything like that. Yeah. And and if he had a propensity for mental illness, I mean, who knows if that accelerated when, you know, when he had a motorcycle crash. Uh, I mean, yes, we'll never know. Yeah. I mean, I think he did have some underlying mental illness. He had some underlying issues. Mm-hmm. And then he had possibly a closed head injury, although they didn't think he did. I mean, they sent him home. Yeah. But I think he had some issues, and then he didn't he didn't want to do anything right. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a sad story. It is a sad story, but when you read all the source material, it's very much about Johnny Lewis, you know, Sons of Anarchy, you know, murder, suicide. Right. But they don't really talk about Kathy that much, and that's why I was like, I want to talk about this woman. Yeah. She was amazing. Yeah. And so many young actors and directors and producers and music people. I even read that, like, George Clooney used to come to parties over there all the time. Mm. And it was just a safe haven for these kids who right. were just getting started out. Yeah. And they would have a horrible audition and come back home and she would be there. You know, they'd be licking their wounds and she'd be there, I, I think, with uh, tamales. I think she made tamales. Mm. That was something that they all ate. So, yeah, she was just – she was like a surrogate emotional parent sure. for all of these people. Yeah, that's sad. It is sad. Yeah. Are you ready for me to give you a listener story, a listener true crime story? Yes, here we go with our new segment. This listener actually asked to remain anonymous. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. She did. Okay. My husband, now ex, worked about 250 kilometers from where we lived. He would drive there on Sunday and come back on Friday. He had left for work, and I was home alone with our dog for the week. And during that Sunday night, my dog, who was the neighborhood Gladys Kravitz, (laughs) woke me up acting strangely. Hmm. If she needed to go out, she would just jump on the side of the bed, but she was scratching at the back door and making a strange whimpering noise, something that she never did. Hmm. I looked at the clock and saw it was 1.37 a.m. I got up and let her out the back door, and she ran straight to the front fence and was staring at something through the picket fence. She didn't make a sound, just sat there staring for ages. Wow. I felt very uneasy with how she was behaving, and I was too scared to go and see what she was looking at. Uh, yeah. In case it was a burglar. Uh, yeah. I was quietly calling her to come back inside. She eventually came... And I went back to bed. In the morning at about 5.45 a.m., I woke to someone pounding on my front door and screaming. It was the young woman from across the road. She was hysterical and asked if I had seen her daughter. Then she says, let's call her Tiffany. She's not even using real names. Right. Tiffany was missing and nowhere in their house. Mm. I had seen Tiffany riding her bike on the driveway the previous afternoon, but not since. And not long after, detectives came to ask me questions in regard to the missing girl. I said I didn't hear anything, and he said if I did recall anything to give him a call, and I assured him I would. When I got to work, I mentioned to my supervisor what had happened because I was late because of what had happened. Right. And it wasn't long after that, my supervisor pulled me aside and told me that the police had found the young girl and she had been murdered and her body dumped in a drain Mm. only about 100 meters, just over 300 feet from her home. Oh, no. She lives across the street Uh, from this house. Wow. 
My supervisor suggested I call the detective and let him know about my dog's behavior and the time in case it was relevant. Mm-hmm. I had to give a statement, and it was around 1.30 a.m. when the guy took Tiffany from her bed. Her family rented an older-style cottage, and it had no security screens. He had entered through the window and taken her from her bed. Wow. He was known to their family and had apparently known her since she was a toddler. The police were at their house 24-7 for five days investigating. And when the case went to trial, I had to go to court as a witness to repeat my statement regarding my dog's behavior. Mm. And in the court, I was only a few meters from the guy who had taken this little girl's life. Wow. He had a blank, emotionless expression and just staring through me, which made my skin crawl. I could not get his face out of my head for ages. Wow. That is incredible. (laughs) That's just, wow, I can't imagine going through something like that. But at the same time, I love that our listeners aren't afraid to jump in and help out investigators. Wow. Well, thank you, Anonymous. Thank you, Anonymous. And if you have a true crime story or you have a brush with true crime, send it to us. Yeah, let us know. We'll read it. On air. We'll read it on air. That's right. <laughs> as painful as it may be. As, as scary as it might be, just like that one. Lock yeah. your windows. Yeah. Wow. Or Johnny Lewis might be outside the window. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's lighten it up a little bit. It's been very heavy today. It's been heavy today. Wow. Well, I'm going to lighten it up with a little bit of stupid crimes from Bless Your Heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. Let's start with number one that I'm going to call a sickening crime. Okay. It was a horrific attack, maybe too much even for the man who committed it as he vomited as he ran off from the crime. (laughs) Do you know what we called that when I was in college? No. Driving the Buick. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. All right. In the end, Akeem Finley's sickness was his downfall after he robbed a man at the train station. Okay. Here we go. Police traced him through DNA, left in the pile of puke, and the 24-year-old was jailed for six years for his part in the September 2011 attack in Lamberth, South London. Did he hurt somebody or just steal stuff? No, he beat somebody up. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Glad he went to jail. Exactly. (laughs) Six years isn't long enough. Yeah. All right. I'm going to call number two. Anyone home? Knock, knock. Yep. Who's there? Burglar Darren Kimpton's choice of house to target was probably not the best choice, as police were already inside interviewing the homeowner following a previous (laughs) burglary the same night. (laughs) I know. Oh, that is just bad luck right there. Some bad luck. The thief, whose own defense attorney labeled him as clumsy and pathetic, stuck his hand through a broken window left by an earlier criminal. Oh, my gosh. He's like, look, somebody started it for us. (laughs) Exactly. We'll just go in here. Yeah, police apprehended the 49-year-old as he tried to escape the house. 49? I know. He's old enough to know better. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not going to bless his heart. (laughs) Yep. They handed him a 24-month community order. Judge Rupert Mayo said, you virtually fell into the hands of the police officer. Judge Mayo. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. He then insulted him with the worst thing that you could say to a criminal. What's that? You're not a very good burglar. <laughs> You're a horrible criminal. <laughs> yeah, I know. And not in that way. Yep. You're just really bad at it. Yep. Get another occupation. Exactly. All right. Number three, donut do this. Is this a story about donuts? You know I love a good donut. Sort of. Okay. Okay. One burglar was caught by leaving evidence of his break-in on his face. (laughs) Sean Duffy was jailed for 25 months after breaking into the Sugar and Spice Bakery and was spotted near the scene of his crime by the shop owner and was identified immediately. Ready? Had, yeah. Because he still had crumbs on his face. He still he had like <laughs> icing. Yeah. He had glaze on his face. Yeah. Now one could call that circumstantial evidence, but he was later dubbed the worst burglar ever because he also dropped a letter in the bakery with his name and address on it. Oh my gosh! And this pretty much baked his cake. <laughs> 
Beth did bake his donut. That fried his donut good. Yep, yep. So there's your bless your hearts for the week. I mean, if you've ever had a Krispy Kreme right off the conveyor belt, I, of course, can't have them anymore because they're not gluten-free. Oh, yeah. But they come off the conveyor belt and they're warm and they basically melt in your mouth. And I could see where you would have that on your face. Yeah. Well, I I used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there was the Krispy Kreme headquarters down there. And every morning I drive to work, I would drive by and you could smell, smell it. it. Oh my gosh. You can smell it. Yeah, yeah. The car would I be know. just filled with saliva I by know. the time I got to work. <laughs> anyway. You're like the dog waiting for a treat. Yeah. I couldn't get the window down because it would like fly all over everywhere. Anyway. So there's your bless your heart. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing yep all you have to do is go to hitch to homicide where there's a pull down menu Mm -hmm. you can also suggest the case while you're there and if you've got your true crime story you want to tell us that's the same spot to do it as well bring it on that's my amazing husband out there and that's my beautiful bride in the booth join us next time on hitch to homicide (laughs) bye y'all